flat is a state of mind. Get to know the people, science, and stories that make the Kansas outdoors more than flyover country. This is Flatlander Podcast, presented by the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks and the Kansas Wildlife Federation. What I see on my dirt is undescribable as the Bible. So, Jim, you were saying your kids are super into hunting, uh-huh. and I really want my kids to be. I, I, I want to give them the chance to be into hunting if that's what they want to get into. But um, so you said they both just took bucks this year. Mm-hmm. Do they are they big waterfowlers? Oh yeah, they like every type of outdoor yeah. activity uh, in regard to hunting. Big fishermen too. Okay, so. cool. Yeah, so, do you guys have like? Are you guys just stacked with decoys? Is your garage like filled uh, with decoys? Oh yeah, I've got a lot. In fact, I had to sell some last year just to oh, make really? some more space. Yeah. Oh my gosh, because <laughs> so. that's what we're dealing with right now. We have so many decoys. I didn't realize how many it takes, especially for goose hunting. It's like a whole shed's worth. I've gotten out of goose hunting over the years. That's what I grew up doing back okay. in southern Indiana. We used to goose hunt a lot, and I had hundreds and hundreds of goose decoys. But I still like to goose hunt. But I found that I don't like to eat a lot of geese, oh. and so. I mean, I'll eat a few a year. But yeah. I don't know that it justifies having 200 decoys, and we end up spending most of our time um, deer hunting and waterfowl or duck hunting anyway. Yeah. So. Okay. Yeah, so my my I've husband. Got a few, but I got rid of a lot of them. We still are holding on to our goose decoys, but my husband said, you know, it's really a young man's game, like doing that full setup. Yes. He yes. was super into it back yes. in his early twenties. Me and the two boys, they go out and you shoot a limit of geese. You've got eighteen geese to eat, and that's a lot. Yeah, of geese. that's a lot. <laughs> so I don't want to do that too many times. <laughs> yeah, although I did just find a recipe I really want to try. Um, the Meat Eater series. They have a whole YouTube channel um, with lots of different series on it, and one of them is a is a professional chef who he takes like goose meat, uh-huh. and actually I think he was using snow goose uh-huh. meat, um, which I've always. I have no interest in eating or haven't had an interest in eating, but he makes a steak Diane uh-huh. with snow goose fillets and man, it looks good. Sounds good. Yeah. It was fancy. It was like a date night recipe. Uh-huh. Uh, so pro tip strategy. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so we, yeah, we try to do a little bit of everything. We turkey hunt and, and duck hunt and, and deer hunt and fish we do we always take an annual fishing trip the boys and i somewhere up north we've been going to south dakota the last several years oh wow that too so you guys are busy year-round all the time they're into sports as well so it's hard to find time to to get them out but i've always managed to do that and they've always wanted to go out so so i've found found time to make it happen great that's the dream for for my kids (laughs) (laughs) just don't pressure them when they decide they want to go home you go home amen yep okay that's good that's good advice so um, we're ready we, to rock and roll. We're ready to rock. So let's yeah. introduce this episode, you guys. We are here on a cold winter morning in Emporia with our hot beverages. Yes. Um, we have got special guest Jim Pittman with us from Ducks Unlimited. Welcome, Jim. Uh, nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And of course, I'm one of your hosts, Laura. And I'm Nadia. So today we are going to get into waterfowl conservation, waterfowl hunting. Um, Jim is a guy who has his thumb on the pulse of what's going on with waterfowl in Kansas. So we're going to really get into some hopefully juicy topics. I think the the question list that we sent him, um, I hope, is is a bit thought provoking. And uh, yeah, anything else to add? I'm just really excited. I haven't seen Jim. We figured out since 2015. So this is really exciting. He used to work for the Department of Wildlife 
Wildlife and Parks, and he switched over to the the NGO side, the non-government organization side. And so it's really neat to reconnect, and uh, I'm excited to hear what your work is like at Ducks Unlimited. Uh, well, it's good to see you again. Yeah, and I've kind of been, like I told you earlier, I'm an upland bird guy by training. Yeah. So the last couple of years, I've been doing waterfowl, and so I've picked up a lot of new skills, and it's been fun, and I'll yeah. be glad to tell you about uh, what we're up to here in Kansas. So Yeah, when yeah. I was working with Jim, it was prairie chickens, right? So... Turkey, yep. prairie chicken, yep. all the above. To, that's, that's where I'm trained, <laughs> yeah, Upland Birds. And when I was with the department, I used to be the small game coordinator, of course. Yeah. And so and yeah. I worked for NWTF for a while and then yeah. worked for Wafwa and Lesser Prairie Chickens. And, and now I'm, I grew webbed feet. So I like it. He's well-rounded. Yes. That's the yes. kind of guest we're looking for. <laughs> Try to be. So, Jim, let's kick it off with a little bit about your background. You kind of just gave, gave us a little bit, but um, how did you get started in this field? Well, I grew up on a little farm in southern Indiana, actually about 40 miles west of Louisville, Kentucky, right in the National Forest. And uh, I I've had thousands and thousands of acres of public land right behind my house. And so I could walk out at my back door literally and hunt and fish, and I did every morning and every evening before and after school. And, and of course, we had farm work and things like that. But, uh, you know, I was telling you earlier before we got on the air there that uh, at, in the 90s, early 90s, when I was growing up and kind of getting out on my own, you know, in my teens, turkeys uh, were really starting to expand back into the area. The department there in Indiana had had, had done all the releases, and they were kind of expanding back into that national forest right behind my house. And and so I started hearing gobblers, and and there were already rough grouse back there. And so just trying to figure out what those critters were uh, kind of piqued my interest in wildlife. And so uh, from there, I found out, discovered that, well, wow, you can be a wildlife biologist. I just, <laughs> was a kid, you know, I thought conservation officers were uh, that was it. only wildlife yeah. folks, and I think a lot of people <laughs> believe that. But yeah. uh, So I started looking at colleges, and I went to Purdue and discovered that they had a wildlife uh, degree. And so from the moment I entered college, I uh, wanted to be a wildlife biologist, and that never wavered. And so I got a bachelor's degree there at Purdue, and, and I went and worked for a couple years as a technician. I wasn't sure about going on to graduate school, but... Uh, I worked on a bear project, trapped bears in Louisiana for a year, and then wow. the next year I trapped mountain lions in South Texas as a technician. Super well-rounded, this guy. And so, so I wanted yeah. to study big game. Well, I got time to go to graduate school. I decided I wanted to go. That was how I was going to become a biologist. I was going to get a master's degree. And nobody had a project on big game, but there was this well-funded project in southwest Kansas. It was funded by the department on lesser prairie chickens. And it was through Kansas State. And so I came to Kansas, uh, left the National Forest, and, and came to Kansas and went straight out to southwest Kansas. Wow. Study lesser prairie chickens. And I thought, what in the hell have I done? Yeah, <laughs> you, you weren't thinking that when you were working with bears and mountain lions? Uh, yeah, and so then I went to study chickens in the middle of the prairie. Well, and where, where trees are bad. Like, did you have a hard time getting used to that? Yes, at first. I was, yeah. you know, I, was, I got a forestry degree. I'm yeah. I'm forestry. And so I showed up and there are no trees and Culture there are supposed to be trees. Yeah, yeah but, trees bad. The, 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 you know, I grew to love the prairie and and uh, prairie chickens in Kansas in general. And, and when I graduated, I did go back to Indiana and worked as the small game coordinator in Indiana for a couple of years, their statewide coordinator. And then when the opportunity came up in 05 to come back to Emporia here and work for Wildlife and Parks and do that same job, I took it. And I'd married a Kansas girl uh, while I was out here. And she wanted to come home, and I wanted to come back and, and study prairie chickens and work on prairie chickens. And so we came back, did that for about 10 years, and... And I got lured away to deliver a mitigation program on lesser prairie chickens because uh, that was my background, and I helped develop that and did that for WAFWA, Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, for four years. 
and then from there, I went to the National Wild Turkey Federation, covered Kansas, Nebraska, and South Dakota for a couple of years. And then, wow. And then been, been selling waterfowl uh, conservation for the last couple of years for Ducks Unlimited here in Kansas. Wow. And so, so we've got a kind of a circuitous route. To yeah. What, what's your hat collection like? I've got a mountain of hats. <laughs> yeah. That and stickers, and, I bet. Stickers, and I, <laughs> and I still support all those NGOs, too. Yeah. So, you know, in fact, I'm still the local chapter president for NWTF here, even though I work for Ducks Unlimited. So, well, good for you. Dang, you're busy. So, we all all those NGOs and agencies have a, a a strong conservation mission, and so I support it. You know, there's no competition in my mind. So, yeah, technically, all working towards a similar goal, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Correct. So, you're with Ducks Unlimited right now. Yeah. Uh, for listeners who who aren't familiar with Ducks Unlimited, which I would be shocked if you are not. <laughs> Uh, but uh, tell us a little bit about what their mission is and, and kind of what their role has historically been or currently is here in Kansas. Well, in a nutshell, it's wetland conservation and waterfowl conservation. And my role specifically is to work with private landowners, but we spend a lot of money and technical provide technical assistance on both private and public land uh, in Kansas. And DU is sort of unique, uniquely positioned and has been for a long time to acquire uh, federal money from the North American Wetland Conservation Act. And so we do that twice a year here in Kansas, and it's $2 million a shot. And so we've been bringing in roughly $4 million a year for the last several years for waterfowl conservation activities in Kansas. And those limits were just increased, actually, to $3 million per application. And so we hope to increase that to $6 million a year coming in to Kansas. And so we've really grown, too, since I've started. Um, We've actually hired another engineer or two engineers, so uh, and another biologist. So I think we're up to four four biologists in the state now. Uh, two engineers, a land manager, and a program manager. Wow. So when you say engineer, what what kind of engineer? And so we we have they're civil engineers, and they design uh, wetland infrastructure, so oh. di- dikes and water control structures, and, and and things of that nature. And so I go out and I meet with private landowners and and help come up with concepts uh, for wetland restoration or wetland developments. And then uh, I work hand-in-hand with the engineer to to bring those to life and secure funds from NACA to, to help pay for some of those costs. And so we do it on private and public land. So so um, that money, so it's being used to obviously pay staff, but also um, land acquisition or easements? or Yep, we can use that money up. You know, I was just talking about restoration projects, but but we also fund easements. Uh, we take, take easement donations. Uh, we do land acquisitions, facilitative-type land acquisitions. The EU doesn't hold land for more than about five years without some sort of special um, internal approval. But if there's a tract of land that, for example, that the department wants, uh, uh, we can, we're a lot more nimble. We can go buy that with some of our internal funds right now or use NACA money to buy it. And then we can hold it until the political climate's right with the department to, to either donate it to them or they can buy it back from us. And so, and then sometimes if it doesn't work out, we'll just put it right back on the private market, but we'll put a conservation easement on it before we do that and, and try to secure some public access to yeah. maybe through a walking hunting area contract or something like that yeah so it's interesting the diversity of skills you just kind of covered for someone working at du it could be civil engineering it could be real estate biology uh, talking with people i'm a realtor on the side too which i told you earlier so yeah i can talk that language as well gosh you are so (laughs) well-rounded man that's cool jack of all trades master of none i guess oh yeah yeah me too but but easements is one of the things really that's grown here in Kansas, conservation easements. And I'll just tell you, I'll give you an example of how uh, 
some folks do that. And, you know, um, if a lot of the people I work with are recreational landowners, uh, and they'll contact me uh, with an idea of developing a wetland on their property, you know, primarily waterfowl hunters, but not always. Uh, they'll contact me, and I get out there and explain to them uh, our, the services we provide. And for the grant money that I talked about, uh, it requires a 50% non-federal contribution. That can be cash or in-kind services or a donation. And so a lot of folks are, when I explain to them that if you're willing to donate a conservation easement on your land, we can take the appraised value of that donation and use that to match the grant money. And oftentimes, if the track's big enough, we can help them build a wetland for no out-of-pocket cost uh, just from donating that easement. And so that's a really popular sort of program that we've got going now in the last couple of years here in Kansas. That's yeah. neat. You know, one of the things that, you know, we're pretty curious about from your perspective, and, and mm-hmm. gosh, you cover so many areas. Um, what do you think um, we're doing well when it comes to water conservation, uh, waterfowl conservation? Do you think it is these easements? Like, is that the, the number one thing that if you guys just rock and roll at anything, that's it? Or is there another area, too, where you guys think you're, you're performing really well? Well, it's not just those easements. It's the whole scope of things I just talked about. We're really nimble. Do you use really nimble in terms of how we can help folks uh, restore wetlands or develop? develop wetlands on the property and we've got the staff now uh, to really deliver it uh, up until a few years ago we we didn't have enough staff to to meet the demand uh, from all the folks that wanted those type of, of services and so we've really grown and we have the ability to do that now yeah you guys aren't limited to the typical uh, red tape and it sounds like you guys are well funded too it, yeah, we are through those and it's not a hundred percent guaranteed those grants but we've We've gotten everyone we've applied for in the last several years, so it's as close to a guarantee as you can get. And there's about, I think there's about $90 million now nationally that we compete for, but uh, we've been able to get two grants a year at $2 million a pop for the last several years. So Pretty impressive. So on the flip side, what do you think we could improve upon when it comes to waterfowl conservation? Well, one of the areas that DU is really trying to get into is broadening our partnerships, uh, not just in Kansas, but uh, nationally. And a lot of the work that we do uh, provides uh, tremendous uh, ecosystem services outside of just waterfowl habitat. You know, that's that's the bulk of our membership and, and the bulk of what I, I sell is, you know, to duck hunters. Uh, you know, but... Uh, we want to expand that now to help municipalities with water quality and, and uh, farmers with water quantity. A lot of what a lot of we're doing, a lot of what we're doing is uh, putting water back in the aquifer out west. We're preventing floods. We're reducing sedimentation. In some of these reservoirs that are used for municipal water supplies or or irrigation things like that. And so. Uh, so we've started to sell ourselves uh, to this broader type audience to try and bring in more philanthropic dollars uh, and and make us eligible for more grant money and things like that so we can further expand the work we're doing. And so and that'll be a good thing. That's a good thing for everyone. And so that's what we haven't done well, but we're really working towards now. I'm so glad you brought that up because I feel like one of the, if there are any, you know, misconceptions about Dogs Unlimited, one of them, you know, could be that you guys are just looking to, um, you know, raise money so, you know, more people can go out and hunt ducks. And really, it's so much more than that because even when it comes down to, you know, creating more, um, you know, you know, easements or land access, it's not benefiting just waterfowl. It's really every species that utilizes that habitat. Uh, so talk to us a little bit about that. Correct. I mean, it, a lot of what we do, I mean, when we build a wetland or restore a wetland, we're helping shorebirds. Uh, you know, we're providing a water supply for terrestrial wildlife uh, out there. We're, we're reducing flooding potentially down that same drainage. Uh, you know, if we do something here along the, the cottonwood, uh, for example, uh, you know, we're reducing sedimentation in some of the reservoirs down below. 
uh, or the Neosho here around Emporia, uh, specifically John Redmond's one I'm thinking about there. But, but uh, so yeah, it benefits a lot more than just waterfowl. Yeah, you know, that's kind of how we've always sold ourselves, and that's still our, you know, our pro- I would say our primary audience uh, because we are a waterfowl conservation organization. But uh, you know, we're we're really focusing more on these other benefits we provide as well, and, and it's starting to pay dividends by getting some. Um, philanthropic philanthropic giving and 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 uh, new partners such as city municipalities and things like that so yeah maybe non-traditional partners like yeah city yeah. municipality I never would have thought that that would be the partner that you would name yep so. we, yep we've just recently bought purchased some land for a couple different cities around town around kansas here uh, to help with some of their water quantity issues so wow okay so, Jim, prior to this recording this episode, I went to your website and I saw you guys are stacked with events for 2023 already, which is really impressive. I wonder at some of these events, what are you hearing hunters talking about the most? Uh, well, hunting pressure in Kansas is probably the thing that comes up the most uh, because most of the waterfowl hunting, uh, it's not like the other species. Most of it's on public land, not all of it, but a much bigger percentage of it's on public land. And so in Kansas, we're 97% privately owned. And so that 3% public land really focuses those hunters uh, down into to just a few localities. And of course, this year, you know, we've had a drought on top of that. So a lot of our wetlands are dry or really low. So that further concentrates those folks. And so that conversation to me just segues right into the discussion about how we need to generate more money uh, for public land uh, and, and from all different sources uh, and advocate uh, at the state house and, and, and beyond uh, for public land acquisitions in, in Kansas. So, yeah, that's one of those areas where I know, you know, coming from the department, it's such a huge thing for us to have partners like Ducks Unlimited, just like you've said, because of the, the ability to be flexible, you know, the, the resources you guys have, it, it's hard to think how we might increase public access otherwise, but I know, hunting pressure, especially as it pertains to waterfowl, has been a huge topic at the department. Really, you know, uh, since the beginning of the pandemic, it kind of was a perfect storm because here we had uh, an immense amount of people who all of a sudden found themselves having more free time. We had states that were closing off certain seasons. So people were coming to Kansas for that. And then on top of it, like you said, you know, now we have drought. And so those concentrations have just been exacerbated. Um, So yeah, not surprised to hear that's a hot topic right now and i know it is in the department yeah yeah, that's probably the most common thing i hear complaint i hear from from hunters but uh, you know there's there's a lot of satisfied folks out of there too i think most people recognize all the good things that the department is doing and some of the limitations that Mm -hmm. they have uh, in terms of land acquisition and management capability and things like that but yeah well, and in terms of, of the people showing up at these events, and I'll confess I've never been to one, but now I'm my interest is... <laughs> I know, we should go. We should go. Um, what, what are, are you seeing like a younger, it skew younger with the demographics, or is it kind of the same people showing up? Are there new people? Uh, well, waterfowl probably does a better, waterfowl hunters, it seems like I've worked with all the different hunter groups over the years in Kansas here. There seems to be like uh, the waterfowl community's done a better job of rec- recruiting youth and than than some of the other uh, types of hunting, particularly like upland birds, you mostly mostly bunch of old folks left <laughs> hunting upland birds. <laughs> seasoned, so seasoned. seasoned. Yeah, well, I'm one of them, so I can say uh, that now. Yeah, so, yeah. <clears throat> but uh, but yeah, it seems like there's a young, a little bit younger crowd, and that's not to say we're doing all that we need to be doing to recruit hunters. But but I think the waterfowl community's probably done a better job than than most. Okay. 
Well, and I like, you know, you have all these events already scheduled for 2023. It seems like, and I won't get on a soapbox too much, but it seems like the way our society is going with millennials, like there's this feeling of loss of a sense of community and in, in uh, across the country really. But I, I f- when I saw the list of events, I thought, well, that's kind of cool. Like if I show up to these regularly, I can sort of build community and connect with other people. I just think that's a really neat opportunity that maybe some millennials should think about yeah. and Gen Z. There you go. Yeah, it's a great, great opportunity to network with other waterfowl hunters and open doors to potential new opportunities if you're a hunter. But, you know, the primary focus, of course, is to, to generate money that, that, right. you, that folks in the conservation side of the organization, like myself, utilize to put habitat back on the ground. And so I'm not involved directly with the fundraising side, and so I, don't, I can't tell you exactly how many chapters we have, but it's quite a lot, and they're pretty well distributed across the state. And I think that we've got about 17,000 members in the state, which is a good wow. number, but that's yeah. a small fraction of the number of people that actually uh, hunt ducks and geese in mm-hmm. Kansas. And it's the same way with all of the other species too. And so I'd put a plug in for, for our hunters and, and out there to join uh, these different NGO groups to, to help us uh, uh, increase some of the funding that, that guys like me use to actually put conservation back on the ground to benefit those species and their hunting opportunities. So, Yeah. So we, we've talked a little bit about what seems to be going well and working well and to, to include these events. Um, where do you think there's some areas for improvement as it relates to waterfowl conservation in Kansas? Well, it kind of goes back to what I was talking about earlier. It's expanding our partnerships. You know, the hunting the hunting community alone is not going to be enough to, to get the job done when it comes to conservation of any of these species that, that uh, we manage, uh, state trust or federal trust. We need another funding source out there. And as much uh, you know, folks have disposable income, put it towards some of these NGOs so we can, we can help move the needle in the right direction for conservation and advocate for some of the legislation out there, like Recovering America's Wildlife Act, that brings a new stream of revenue in to, uh, to help us conserve wildlife uh, across Kansas and, and broader. So, You touched upon drought and that sort of creating or intensifying hunter pressure. And I, I, I want to, you know, I've been in several conversations with folks over the last few months about Cheyenne bottoms. Mm-hmm. And it always gets mentioned, oh, the bottoms are dry this year. We got to hunt elsewhere. And I just, I always find myself longing for more depth to that conversation. And I just wonder, can you just talk to us more? Like, what should we be talking about when it comes to the drought and the bottoms being dry? Like, is that just it? I, I mean... I don't know. I don't know. That's all she wrote. Yeah. Yeah. Like, is there any more to that conversation that we should be having? Well, of course, the climate change issue. Yeah. Small minor detail. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of folks, whether you believe in climate change or not, you know, a lot of folks point towards, and it's clearly we've had changing weather patterns uh, or whatever the cause. And so uh, figuring out a way to uh, reduce the speed at which that's occurring uh, somehow uh, through maybe climate legislation somehow mm-hmm. would be would be a good thing to be focused more on uh, okay. people just kind of see what's happening this year but you know you look at long-term trends and things like that it's uh, you know clearly getting more sporadic weather patterns and in certain areas less rainfall in other areas just the opposite so right and i mean looking at historic trend data we know <coughs> the bottoms has been dry before and we know mm-hmm. that tall grass prairie we're used to drought it's part of the cycle and has been for thousands of years but projections looking at climate change and the current emission scenarios show an increasing frequency and magnitude of drought. Mm-hmm. So to me that like, that's really frightening and daunting, but I take comfort in knowing that DU is working towards 
preserving or conserving habitat because that could be a mitigator like we were talking earlier one way to mitigate that at least from a habitat perspective is to put more wetlands on the ground yeah and give ourselves more opportunities to have uh, water out there in in certain parts of the state and so uh, you know there's some good things too that come from those I didn't want to fail to mention this. There's some good things that occur when when we do have these droughts, too. I know, for example, at the bottoms that they've got a lot of work done this year that they wouldn't have been able to do otherwise uh, because it was dry going yeah. in and repairing some infrastructure and we were part of helping them with some of that so yeah, yeah. cattail removal yes, yes. yes. That, that's yep. removal. way to so, make yeah make lemonade out of a lemon right yeah and so a lot of, a lot of people don't see that you know the public or a lot of the public's only out there when they duck hunt and when there's water and they don't see all the good things that are going on during the summer out there too and all the hard work those managers are putting in to, to ensure and they've got a good place to hunt when the rains do come so yeah. Right. And you guys have a good article about that on your website. We'll link to in the show notes about okay. that. Well, I haven't read it, so. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm glad Jim. we have I'm glad we have one there. <laughs> yeah, that that's something that I've been surprised by, I, you know, in the department. You know, we just assume, oh, everybody knows the good work that we're doing, but I think there there uh, is a lack of education about what it takes to to maintain and manage um uh, oh, wetland. Or just wildlife yeah. areas in general. You know, people show yeah. up in the exactly. fall to hunt and they don't recognize what happens during the summertime out there that yeah. either improves or, uh, you know, conditions that, that make it difficult to yeah. you can go the other way. But It's kind of like it, a puppy. I mean, if you just let yeah. that thing run amok on its own, things are going to get wild real quick. Right. <laughs> it, it takes people out there working and they do. They're working hard to, to ensure our sportsmen and women have a great place to go. Yeah. Uh, in the fall and so uh, this kind of brings up another thing I wanted to touch on too you know here you hear a lot of hunters and anglers and such vent about uh, negative things all the time and and I would encourage those folks rather than just do that and get on social media and complain go talk to some of these managers that are actually doing the job out there and find out why some of those things happened and why they made certain decisions and you'll learn a lot if you do that and what they can do to help yep and what you you can do to help yeah yeah yeah, so that that answers our our next question, and like that was my biggest burning question. No, no, that's that's great because maybe we can expand upon it a little bit. But if you're like me, you get into these conversations with other hunters, and it is a very negative space. There's too many people out there. There's too much pressure. There's people sky blasting, etc. How can we encourage those people to direct that anger in a positive place? And so you just provided one suggestion: go talk to managers of public land, see how you can help. But what else? Yeah, well, that's the main way. Encourage, encourage those managers, too. If, you know, have a one-on-one conversation with them. And if there's a bunch of folks that have the same issue, can try to talk to that manager or the, even the regional supervisor and see if they can't have a public meeting to explain uh, why some of those things uh, are occurring and take, get some feedback from the public. They're willing to do that. I know those guys would do that. Yeah. And so that's a much more positive uh, way to handle those issues than it is to complain on social media or go straight to commissioner and yeah. complain. So. And yeah. something I just, you know, would like to reiterate is, you know, our waterfowl, or I'm sorry, our uh, area managers, they're people too. And at the end of the day, they're hunters too. And so they want the same things. They truly do. And I think that's why I think it's so important what you said, Jim, to talk to them, to see what restrictions are in place, you know, what challenges are they facing right. and figure out a way to, you know, uh, form an, an ally um, and partnership there to figure out how you guys can solve those problems together. Um, I think there's just a misconception out there that uh, that one person is controlling everything. And really there are so many controlling factors, oh, yeah, right. even just down to weather and 
and that's something that's not within right. our control at all. But um, it's usually not one individual's, um, you know, influencing the outcome of a situation. There's usually multiple things going on, and and some of those things uh, can't be fixed, but some of them can. So right. yeah, having that open right. dialogue is they, so important. Yeah, I know those managers appreciate the feedback, but uh, you know, it's it's good to go the other way too. Oftentimes, most of the time, more often than not, those hunters will find out that the decisions those managers are making are uh, make sense logically. Mm-hmm. But they don't know all the variables that have gone into exactly. So as wildlife practitioners, we have the good fortune to be able to participate every year. There's a conference called the Kansas Natural Resources Conference. Right. Are you going to be there, Jim? Yes, I will. Okay. We'll have a DU. We'll have a booth. Too. Okay, I'll see you there. Um, but the conference is really directed towards wildlife practitioners, and it's it's to learn the basically the state of the science as it relates to Kansas. And there's a lot of talks, and students are there, and it's fantastic. And I always wonder, like, I wish there was a version of that for the public and for hunters to attend mm-hmm. so that they could learn the state of the science. But I know there's got to be a good resource out there, like a newsletter or a magazine or a website. And I was wondering if you could recommend or talk to us a little bit about what communications are available to get waterfowl, the waterfowl hunting community kind of up to speed on the science. Just some general information about science. Uh, probably just becoming a member of DU and getting our magazines probably as good as anything. You know, it's a plug, shameless plug for my own organization, but that's really the truth. You know, we put out uh, probably as good of scientific information in general terms for the public as anyone. Uh, and so, you know, waterfowl counts and wetland management techniques and, and, and that sort of thing, uh, they can get just by reading our magazine. And their funds go to help support conservation. So win-win. Yeah. I know I look at the the waterfowl forecast every year from Ducks Unlimited because if nothing else, it's just so great to look at. It's formatted really well. It's easy to read. Well, I'll do a shameless plug as well. You know, obviously we're a science-based organization as well. You know, that's our primary focus. And we don't always do a fantastic job of, of distilling that information for, for public consumption. But, um, you know, this whole conversation has got me thinking about a recent article that we published in Kansas Wildlife and Parks magazine that talks about this very subject of, of public lands waterfowl hunting and, and the pressures that we're seeing. But it also gave some really great tips straight from the mouth of babes from our wildlife managers um, talking about ways that you can get creative Mm -hmm. to make sure that you're still having a successful and enjoyable season. And, and some of those things are very commonsensical, but some of them are things that uh, waterfowl hunters may not have thought of um, that can kind of increase their odds of success this year. So I recommend checking out that issue, the magazine as well. Huh? Do you remember who wrote that? That was done by Michael Pierce, one of our freelance outdoor writers. Yeah. For those who, uh, who know Michael, he used to write for, um, the Wichita Eagle for many, many years on the outdoors, covered a lot of the department's commission meetings and all things to do with hunting and angling. So, uh, yeah, we're fortunate to be able to, to benefit from his expertise, uh, in retirement. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm really glad to hear that. Cause I, when I first moved back to Kansas in 2014, I used the Eagle, like the outdoor section every Sunday uh-huh. to kind of get up to speed. And then that went away. Yeah. Super depressing. It is depressing, but yeah. we're still here. Okay. <laughs> check out the magazine, check out the DU magazine. Uh, Jim, tell us, and you kind of already, you know, you've given us a really good reason to join DU. Like I'm sold, but why, why should people consider becoming a member of either DU or other local conservation organizations? Well, like I said, we're just, just revenue from wildlife fee funds and, and, federal excise taxes and things like that and duck stamps, that's not enough to get the job done. We're still losing ground, uh, not just for waterfowl, but for, for other species of wildlife too. And so when you join an NGO, that puts more money in the pot for folks like me to put habitat back on the ground. And so 
the more members we can have, uh, the better for our species and the better for our, our, our tradition of hunting uh, going forward. So, Well, and also do you think, sorry, Nadia. Well, that's what okay. you Well, do you think, like sense of community too. I think that's, to me, that's really appealing to be able to show up at a local chapter meeting. And yes, it's a fundraiser, but also being able to talk with other folks. Yeah, good, like that's good point. Plus it's that. fun. I mean, it's, it's a fun, bunch, of, yeah. bunch of like-minded people and you'll, you'll open some doors to some new opportunities for yourself uh, by getting involved. And so, and you have a good time while you're doing it. And from a financial standpoint, I mean, all of those contributions that people make, even at banquets are tax deductible, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Taxes. When I yeah, that's another that's another episode. Yeah. <laughs> Let's never do an episode. Of taxes. Okay, deal. Uh, I'm out on deal. that. Deal. start talking about taxes. <laughs> so, Jim, um, you know, we've talked about everything under the sun, but one thing we haven't talked about is what what's got you worried. What kind of keeps you up at night when it comes to this work? Well, kind of what we were just talking about. I mean, there's a lot of great, dedicated folks out there working on conservation, and we're still losing ground because we don't have enough money and still not enough staff to to get the job done uh, for these species. So that's what keeps me up at night. Uh, and kind of related to that is is recruitment of new people, not just youth, but new people into to hunting and fishing and those sort of things. Uh, we're still losing people, which means we're losing revenue and and the likelihood that our traditions are going to be around for 200 years down the road is uh, you know in doubt in my mind because we're not doing a good enough job bringing new people into the fold so Mm -hmm. so yeah those are the things that keep me up at night and so uh, if I could encourage folks to do anything it would be join these NGOs uh, that I talked about get involved and then also take a new person hunting or fishing so yeah challenge accepted challenge accepted Anything else you want to share with our listeners? I don't know. We've covered a lot of stuff. We have. Yeah. <laughs> I'm happy to chat about whatever you got in mind. I'm just, I'm still like, you, so shocked you came from a forestry path. I know. Can we went please, into can we shoot please, prairie chickens. Yeah. I want to talk about the bear and mountain lion work, please. Oh. <laughs> I did that. I worked on, after, like I said, after I got out of my, um, uh, with my bachelor's at Purdue, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with myself. I knew I wanted to be a biologist, but wasn't finding a full-time job. And so I applied for this technician position, uh, working for the University of Tennessee. And we went down and we did a mark recapture study. I was working for a graduate student uh, on Tensaw River National Wildlife Refuge in northeast Louisiana. And I spent about a year down there catching bears and aldrich foot snares. And I think we caught 38 bears that summer baiting them with donuts. There was a Dolly what? Madison plant up the road, and they gave us expired donuts. Uh, we'd hang them from trees and set that foot snare in between two donuts, and surprisingly successful. Bears are pretty easy to catch because their belly gets the best of their brain. And so that was fun. And so we'd put ear tags on them, then we did uh, hair traps, and we were using DNA to, to do mark recapture study to see how many different bears are actually there. And so this was a threatened subspecies of black bears, the Louisiana black bear. And we determined, uh, the graduate student determined, there were actually quite a few more there than, than they realized. Still a low number. but, but uh, So I was part of that study, which was cool. And one of the guys I worked with that summer, uh, I still didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And so the next summer, he was a graduate student at Sol Ross State. Uh, in West Texas, and he started a project studying um, mountain lions in South Texas, looking at foraging ecology of lions. And so we used the same trap technique, not minus the donuts. But okay, used the same, I was curious. Used the same, like, yeah. same foothold snares you, at, to catch mountain lions the next number, and they're much more challenging to catch because they don't typically eat carry on, um, you know, dead things. And so you had to 
basically put snares on places where they were likely to 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 traverse like holes and fences or hmm. things like that and so we caught a few and then we ended up bringing in some dogs and ran some with dogs and caught some that way too but so i did that two years in a row and then i went and studied prairie chickens so i had a kind wow. of a change of pace but wow does seeing a, a tree kind of give you like a mixed you're like oh i want to like you but you're bad here in kansas <laughs> given, given your indiana <laughs> Well, they're not bad everywhere, even here in Kansas. And so, you know, there's lots of places in riparian corridors where trees belong. Uh, For example, across the whole state, you know, cottonwoods along our western stringers of of river. And so, you know, I recognize, I'm better at recognizing now where there are supposed to be trees and where there's not. And and which trees are supposed to be there. You know, we're not supposed to have uh, red cedar out in the middle of our native prairie, for example. Mm -hmm. But we are supposed to have bur oaks in certain parts of the state uh, in, in upland topography and things like that. And so... So, no, I still like trees. I just it's know where they're supposed to go. No, it's, it's more complicated, yeah. yes. It seems like every other episode we get into the tree thing. Oh, yeah. 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 I like trees, just the right ones in the right places. Me too. Okay. Love that. Yeah. Well, and now I know if I'm out in the wilderness and I see a donut hanging from a tree, run. <laughs> run. Yeah, you, might get, you might get caught. You might get caught. So. But, those, you know, talking about those, those two summers, that was the most fun I've ever had uh, as a biologist because I didn't have any of the political stuff to deal with that I'd did mm-hmm. later in my career. It was just out catching wildlife. Yeah. I was out riding around the four wheeler and trapping bears and mountain lions. Yeah. So that's what I dreamed about doing when I wanted <laughs> to become a biologist. Check that <laughs> and, box. And then I got stuck in an office and here I am today. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, Jim, this has been so much fun talking with you and learning about your work and your history. It's just so interesting and exciting. Um, thank you for joining us and, and for taking the time. Well, well, thank you for having me. Hopefully I said something useful and <laughs> Somebody does and uh, goes about their business. So yeah, this is great. Yeah, well, listeners, thank you for joining in and following Flatlander podcast. As always, if you have ideas about future topics that you would like to see covered, or ideas about a guest speaker that you'd like to see on the show, be sure to shoot us an email. And listeners, remember, flat, flat is a state of mind. <laughs> Flatlander podcast is made possible through a partnership between the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks and the Kansas Wildlife Federation. Sound and production by Megan Mayhew. Music by Kansas locals, The Box Turtles. Become a member of KWF for free by visiting kansaswildlifefederation.org. And be sure to follow KWF on Facebook at Kansas Wildlife Federation and on Instagram at KS Wildlife Fed. Stay up to date on all things KDWP by following the department on Facebook at Kansas Wildlife and Parks and on Instagram at the KDWP. Remember, the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks is supported by flatlanders like you through the sale of licenses and permits. Consider buying a hunting or fishing license today to conserve and protect the wild spaces and faces that make Kansas more than flyover country. Flyover country.